Well, hello again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. We're continuing our journey together through the book of James this morning. We're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. It's printed for you in the ESV translation at the top of page 10. And then uh, boys and girls who are staying with us, you have your own version there at the bottom of page 10. We'll be referring to both of those uh, throughout our service. And again, if you're a newcomer with us today, we'd love to get to know more about you. You can scan this little QR code here at the back of your bulletin, just like you're doing for just about every menu and every restaurant nowadays. And you give us a little bit of information about yourself that we won't share with anybody, but if you'd like to stay in the loop about what's going on, or maybe you want to grab coffee with me or anything, uh, we'd love to do that. You can give us some information and we can start that process together. And so as we're working through this book of James here, I want to kind of get you into the mindset of James 4 before we go to the text. I want to do it by, by referring to Jane Austen's masterpiece, Pride and Prejudice. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I am going to do something I don't rarely uh, often do, and that's this. I'm going to make a recommendation, okay? If you have a pulse, you should read Pride and Prejudice. It is a fantastic book. It's so good. It has, has these great one-liners all throughout it. There's like this one scene where this one young lady is drawing attention to herself to the exclusion of other young ladies, and she's doing it on purpose, and the matriarch of the group kind of realizes she's doing this, so she kind of just stops and goes, that is enough, child. You have delighted us quite long enough. Bazing, right? It's just, because it, it sounds so liquid and smooth and nice, but you're like, ooh, that was actually hurtful. <laughs> okay, young men in the room who I've lost already, like Jane Austen, whatever. Okay, young men, young men, right here. This book contains the key to a woman's heart. <laughs> True story. I'm not going to give it away, but I'll give you one hint, okay? Here's a hint. You ready? When in doubt, be Darcy. Always be Darcy. Okay? If you don't know what that means, you need to read the book. Okay? Because the young lady you're interested in, she's going to say yes to that. Okay? Okay. So, why am I talking about this? Because obviously, James had no idea of anything Jane Austen would write a couple thousand years later. But in James chapter 4, we're going to see some serious pride. We're going to see it resulting in some massive prejudice. And we're also going to have a few monsters thrown in there. I almost titled the sermon, you know, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, but there's a movie and copyrights, and I didn't want to get a cease and desist letter or all that stuff. Anyway, so since I'm talking about monsters, what in the world is that? So a monster is a scary, unnatural thing. Back in James 2, at the very end of the, uh, of the chapter, James tells us that separating faith and works, belief and practice, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, separating those two things is just as scary and unnatural as separating a body and a spirit. Okay, so kind of get us the picture of that. What I said is we, we all know this. So think of a human, separate body and spirit. You have all spirit, no body. What is that? Like, that's like a ghost, right? Call Scooby-Doo because ghosts are all over the place in Scooby-Doo. But nowadays we have separate the other side. What do you have when you have all body and no spirit, right? That's a zombie. Right? It's time to, to start walk, watching Walking Dead. You can get some, you know, uh, pointers on how to fight that battle. But, and I give you that picture because James wants us to see that's just as scary and unnatural as it is to be a Christian who separates faith and works. 
who separates strong belief and strong practice. It's just as monstrous. It's just as destructive to community. And so James 3 ends with this promise of community, this promise of a church being in harmony, that in the gospel we're empowered to let go of our selfishness, we're empowered to let go of of what he calls earthly wisdom, and instead by grace we cling to the wisdom of God. And that grace makes us, he tells us, into a meek people, a people who are literally, he says, beautifully different in our mildness. Think about that. In a world that is anything but mild when it comes to any kind of disagreement, James says one of the ways Christians stand out is they are beautifully different in our mildness. And James 4 begins by pointing out rather curtly that such is not the community that he's writing to. They ain't like this at all. So this is a rough text, I'm going to say that up front. It's kind of in your face, um, it's difficult, and it's harsh, but it always brings us back to the gospel. So with that uh, trepidatious introduction, would you please rise for the reading of God's word. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your word, this is one of those passages that those of us who've confessed faith in Christ, we say we believe in the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. This is one of those passages that tests that belief, Lord, because it's going to confront us. It's going to contradict us. It's going to challenge us. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to be humble before your Word, that we might reflect Christ in our lives. We ask, Lord, that as you convict, you would show us your saving grace. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So what James wants us to see is that warfare inside of Christians, 
produces warfare inside the church. But God-given humility through the gospel brings peace. It gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Since what we want is often no good, God's grace changes our wants. I remember when I first became a Christian as a teenager that I started going to this Bible study that had, you know, a bunch of older people in it. I was like 15, 16, and there were people in there that were like 35, or so old. Or like 55? Are you kidding me? Did people even live that long? And I remember I was in this Bible study with these old guys, and one of these old guys who was you know, one of those charming southern suburbanites who talks like he has never been past third grade, but is like actually a highly successful executive. Love those guys. And so he's praying, and he goes, Lord, Please change my want tos. And I, I almost cracked up as, you know, as a teenager, but as I've gotten older, that is actually a really profoundly godly prayer. Because the battle of temptation for the Christian is always at the level of desire. And so he's praying, Lord, will you change my want tos? Will you change my desires? And that's exactly what this passage is about today. God's gonna change our want tos by, by grace so we can be this community that he has envisioned for us. So James starts off asking the rough question. Why do you fight and argue so much in church? And he says it's because inside each of us, what our sin wants is at war with what we say we believe. He uses the words here for combat, for warfare. These are big conflicts in the church because there's big conflicts inside the Christians. James says our passions are at war. Passions is not a good word anymore. Back in the King James Version time, passions was the perfect translation. Not a good word anymore. We could even try to say desires. It's not a good word. It's actually the Greek word from which we get our word hedonism from. And usually this means lusts, it means sensual things, things you really want to have. James straight up tells us conflicts in the church are so rarely about truth. Instead, they center around our personal lusts, our desires. Our desire to serve Jesus, what James has called true religion, wisdom from above, being a poet, conflicts with our desire to serve ourselves, what James has called false religion, earthly wisdom, being a monster. We can get so caught up in what we lust after that we're willing to hurt someone, James says. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls. Let's look at your verse two, boys and girls, there at the bottom of page 10. It says this, when your sin really wants something and can't have it, you are angry enough to kill. You demand but don't get, so you fight. The problem is you've forgotten God. Boys and girls, have you ever been so angry you want to just hurt your friend, your sibling? It's because you really want something. And James is telling us, boys and girls, that adults, Christians do that too, because what we want is overpowering. James points to, to the depth of the lust and the passion in our hearts. He says, you desire. Older translations would call this, you covet. It's the word for an inordinate desire. You have to have this thing. It's used often of an idolatrous desire in the New Testament. James is pointing to Christian idolatry here. Yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> you, you want your thing appreciated, even worshiped, and when it isn't, you're angry enough to hurt someone. You're willing to sacrifice a relationship on the altar of your idol is what James is telling us. 
Because we all defend our lusts, don't we? We all defend our idolatrous desires. And James counters that with this interesting phrase. He says, you lack because you don't ask. See, what he's saying here in the context of this idolatry is you have this need, you have this desire, and instead of going to God for fulfillment, for status, for joy, we go to our idol for status, for joy, fulfillment. We deprive ourselves because we have this desire, and instead of going to God, we don't ask, we go to our idol. And that makes us hurting, makes us unfulfilled. And guess what? Hurting people hurt people. That's what James is trying to get us to see here. And then James says, even when we do sometimes go to God and actually ask, we don't do it correctly. There's a couple ways we can do this. One, we can ask completely selfishly. Like for instance, your car keeps breaking down, you're tired of having to repair it, it's time just to get something newish to you perhaps, and you don't really know if you have the means and you're not sure if it's a wise decision. Lord, would you, I need to get back and forth from work and my responsibilities. Would you please give me wisdom on how, on how best to get a new vehicle? That's one thing, that's, that's good prayer. Here's asking inappropriate. Lord, have you seen how sweet that BMW 550 is? I mean, it looks like a rocket, sounds like a muscle car, and you just like reek of cool if you drive one of those. You know, Lord, I really, I think it would be good for my career. Can I, you, you don't do that. That, that, that. You can't pray that prayer, right? And, and we're good religious people. We know that. We don't, we don't do that one. But here's what we do, and James nails this on. We legitimately pray for something, but we don't come in the merits of Jesus. We Christians very often come in our performance. We don't come to Savior Jesus. We come to Genie Jesus, and we rub that lamp with church attendance. We rub that lamp with Bible study attendance. We rub that lamp with having a personal quiet time every day. We rub that lamp with being a good person. And I rub the lamp, give me my wishes. That's the essence of earthly, monstrous wisdom James showed us last week. You ask inappropriately. And James wants us to understand how deadly serious this is. Because let's be candid, we, we, we know that's not good, but we don't think it's like there's a lot of worse sins out there, right? But standing as an Old Testament prophet would, James looks at this situation in God's family, those who've confessed faith in him, and he calls us adulterers. To the covenant family of God, mired in conflict, living to fulfill selfish desires, demonstrating earthly wisdom and hypocrisy, he says, y'all are cheating on God. And, and he goes even further, he calls this friendship with the world and hatred towards God. Now for some of us, that's our favorite verse though, right? Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Build the church walls higher. Keep us safe from them dirty unbelievers out there. Make sure they clean up their act before they come in here. Don't want to be too friendly. That's worldliness. No, no. James has already defined worldliness in this context, and it's not what we think. We in church world, we tend to think of worldliness it has a lot to do with issues of morality. James has already defined worldliness as ignoring all that stuff from verse 3. It's refusing to be beautifully different in our mildness and instead being impassioned and ruled by our idolatrous desires. That's worldliness. See, worldliness is Christians thinking and living as if Jesus never existed, all while proclaiming he did and, and trying to praise him as Lord. It's a separation of belief and practice. It's unnatural. 
It's monstrous and it's scary. That's friendship with the world according to James. It actually proclaims that God is our enemy. Here's how I put it for the kids in their verse four to make it more understandable. Said this, you people are so unfaithful. Christians acting like monsters actually hate God. You see, our culture is all about status through accomplishments, isn't it? Or through the accumulation of stuff. And we then turn around and if we define people's worth by those same cultural values, we're not friends of God. That's worldliness. But James won't let us wallow there. Notice the great thing about God that he reminds us of. Even in our lack of befriending him, God loves us. God is a passionate lover of his people who will not let us drift away. So he's poking at these things. He's pointing these things out that we might change. Apathy chooses not to confront. Love cares enough to confront. And so God confronts us with the, with, with the uh, confronts us in the church now, verses five through 10, pointing out our prejudice, but pointing out his grace. So we're walking through this text together. We get to this weird verse. Let's look at verse five together. This is a strange verse. Verse five says this. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It's a weird, weird verse. Weird, weird Greek. As many translations as you can find in a, in a bookstore, or you'll, you'll, you'll get of this verse. What's going on here? So we're not gonna take you through some linguistic journey. Don't worry about that. I can tell you this. So in your Bibles there, in your bulletins, if you want to, you can take a pen and you can erase those quotation marks, cross them out. He's not actually quoting a single verse from the Old Testament. What he's doing, he's making a summary statement of the whole Old Testament in order to make a point. Here's how I did it for the kids. We can kind of understand this. Let's look at the kids, verse five together. They're at the bottom of page 10. It says this, can't you see all throughout your Bible that God really wants his people to be all in for him? James says, if you read the whole Old Testament, one thing stands out. God is jealous for his people and he accepts no rivals. He's jealous in his love. He's a passionate lover who will not let his people drift away. See, the whole point of James' letter, especially at this point, is it's gut check time. He's given us this good theology. Now he's talking to those in the church and he's basically saying, are you all in or not? Do you flirt with the world system, ambitious, craving for its glory, longing to be thought well of by that system? Is that your bedrock desire? Is that your default mode? Is that kind of your base operating system right there? The world's approval is my desire. Or is it to be beautifully mild in Jesus? See, it's the battle of our want-tos and what James is doing right here. James is going after pride. It's the chief sin. It's the sin all the way back from the garden. Adam and Eve said, no, you do not get to rule over us. We get to rule over ourselves. It's deep in the human heart. And even though we in the church have been forgiven of it, it doesn't mean it goes away. It's still deeply inside of Christians. Warfare and murder in the church exist because there's warfare and murder in our prideful hearts. See, we Christians are rarely all in. We know that we don't often demonstrate this beautiful mildness. We're riddled with hypocritical desires. We fight with others far too often. So we come to that knowledge and so what do we do? Do we go, well, we should try harder. 
We should be more serious about our faith. I need to hunker down and be more disciplined. No, it's not where James goes. In spite of our failures, James shows us with his very next words. He says, God gives more grace. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God, God's jealousy for us fuels God's grace to us. God's solution to our prideful adultery is more grace, more love, more forgiveness. It's not punishment. It's grace. If you don't believe me, let's look at the second half of verse 6 there. What does he say right there? He says what? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, when we humble ourselves, we realize the depth of our unfaithfulness and God responds in kindness. See, when we realize that worldliness is not the dirty culture out there creeping in here, but worldliness is our prideful hearts creating warfare in here, when we realize that, that humbles us and God gives grace in that humility. See, we blow it when it comes to being a poet of Jesus, those who actively live out the vibrant life he's put into us. We blow it. We feel that failure. And so we try by default, don't we, as religious people, to bring something else to God to feel better. Well, I know I'm not a good Christian, but I tithe. I'm really nice to my coworkers. I take my neighbor's garbage out. We point to our faithfulness. We point to our ceremonialism. We point to the ritual stuff we do instead of resting in Jesus. And when we do that, we tend to think because I participated, because I did something, you owe me a little bit. That's pride. See, the humble see that truth about themselves, that in the face of his jealous love, God doesn't crush. He romances with grace, and it humbles them even more that he would pursue after us. Because those who are crushed under their own sin, God gives grace to them. Pridefully ignoring our sin causes us to exalt ourselves by attacking others who aren't doing it as well as we're doing it. Hub, humbly owning our sin causes, causes us to ask for mercy. And God loves to answer that. Do you believe that? I mean, this is some rough stuff. Okay, if you're visiting with us today, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I don't know if you knew, the Bible spends most of its time critiquing Christians, not critiquing non-Christians. You're getting to see James go all out here on Christians, and I hope it's surprising to you because, you know, this humility is what James is looking for to reflect Jesus. Zombies, those focused on works, those focused on doing the right things, they feel better through religious performance instead of humility. Ghosts, those focused on belief, they, they, they feel better through having really accurate theology instead of humility. But poets, people remade in Jesus into unified wholes, real humans like we're supposed to be, are humbled by our sin and we submit to God, which is how verse seven defines the humility of verse six. We have to admit that we need God and that we were wrong. See, humility is submitting to God. And here's the thing, pride doesn't submit. 
I want to give you an illustration. Before I do, I've got to caveat it. So one of the things that's about preaching that most people don't realize is preaching is not me getting up here and telling you what to do, telling you how to live your life. Preaching is kind of like a public autopsy. I spend a week with this text, and it shows me my sin, my failures, my shortcomings, and the grace of God that matches those. And so what I do is I, I do all that autopsy work on myself, and then I come on Sunday mornings, and ideally what I'm supposed to do is to say, look at my guts and what this text has done to me. Maybe it'll do the same thing to you. And I'm telling you that because I want to share what this text just ripped me badly this week. And I need to say that because some of you might think I'm actually going to try to, I'm passively, aggressively trying to, trying to pursue a, 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 an agenda here. I'm not. I'm being very honest. This is what the text did to me this week. And it's this. Wearing masks over the last 18 months has totally shown me how unbelievably prideful I am. Again, I'm talking about me. This is not a passive-aggressive agenda. It just grates on me. I don't know if I can express, and, and I speak for a living, I don't know if I can express to you the depths of the emotion in my heart that this piece of paper or cloth puts on me. I it just, I don't want to be told what to do. I don't like having to submit to wearing a mask. I don't care about the science. It just feels like a defeat somehow. That's pride. And I, I confess as your pastor, I'm a prideful, prideful man. Will you please pray for me? Because as I was like debating with myself whether I should even confess this, I, what really sealed the deal for me was um, just, you know, I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm, I'm pro-life. And all the arguments that I was coming up with to not have to wear a mask were pro-choice arguments. And I, when I realized that, I was like, oh man, I need Jesus. See, my response shows to uh, this mask. It's a, piece, it's a mask. My response shows that my identity is not in Jesus. My identity is rooted in what? My freedom, my autonomy, my rugged individualism, my independence. I must have those. They're an inordinate desire from verse two. See, what the gospel promise is that when I submit to God, when I let him identify me, then he will exalt me and give me the dignity of being an adopted son. And so I don't have to cling to my freedom. I don't have to cling to this individual because I have the identity of son and that's enough. And so when we come to that realization about our own pride, when we flee to God, Look at the incredible promise that he gives us in the first part of verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Very accurate translation, totally misses the emotion of the original. So your daughter comes to you, let's put her about 10 years old. She comes to you after school one day, just completely undone. She's crying, she's upset. She lost her temper at school, said something very mean to the teacher and to her friend group. So she's gonna get in official trouble and she's also being like shunned now. And she's alone, she's ashamed, she's embarrassed and she just needs a parent. And you look at her and you say, oh child, draw near. 
right? No, no, man, get up here. Let me give you a hug. You embrace that thing, right? You hug that out. That's what the translation should be. Let's look at the kids' version together of verse eight. Here is really what it, it should say. To snuggle up to God and he will hug you back. I know you Presbyterians are uncomfortable with that. I can defend this translation, okay? He's like telling you, I know you've blown it. I know you're ashamed. I know you feel, come here, come here. And let me embrace you. Let me embrace you. See, we need to feel that truth in our guts because we read this verse backwards, don't we? We need to clean up and then we get to come to God, right? Uh, everybody knows that. Clean up your act first, then come to God. You're dirty. But that's not what James says. James says, come to God and he'll clean you up. Grace is the opposite of our instincts. And this goes all the way back to the mean Old Testament. What's the first part, the preamble to the Ten Commandments, remember? I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt. He already saved them. Thus shall you do now. He gives them the law after he rescued them, not before. God is, has a heart of grace. And see, when we see the reality of God's heart of grace, we are then put in a position to submit and obey because we want to, because grace changes our want-tos. See, when God changes our want-tos, repentance follows. And in that repentance, verse nine shows us we are truly broken over our sin which leads us straight into the hope of verse 10. Literally verse 10 says, be humiliated before the Lord, not humbled. Be humiliated, that's a big difference, right? And it means what you think it means. It's really hard to judge others if you're humiliated before the Lord, isn't it? Especially when we've been humiliated by the glorious grace of God in Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean by that. There, there's these four books in the New Testament. They're called the Gospels. They're kind of portraits of Jesus. And one of them is called the book of John. And John is the most theological of all of the books. And in chapter one of John, he does this great explanation of who Jesus is. And one of the key phrases he uses that's very unique, he says, Jesus is the one who comes from the bosom of the Father. Or if you'll let me translate like I did for the kids, Jesus was snuggled up in God's lap and he left that comfort for us. He left that exaltation to come and be humiliated for us. And as Jesus hung on the cross naked and ashamed, he actually became our sin. And so he was humiliated before people, but he was also humiliated before his father because he became the sinner on the cross in order to raise us up. See, James doesn't call us here to get serious. He calls us to look at Jesus and be like him, resting in the bosom of God, yet humiliated before God. See, and in that place, humiliated in ourselves, yet exalted by grace, is where James finally gets specific. He lays this theological groundwork where he finally just nails us, and we'll end with this. Verse 11 and 12, monster judges. Worldly pride expresses itself most often in our judgmental heart spilling out into our judgmental words. So James asks the big question, who do we think we are to judge our neighbor? See, you can't judge 
while demonstrating the beautiful mildness of Jesus. Judging is not Christianity. I really hope the non-Christians out there know that. Judging is not Christianity. Judging is churchianity. It's based on religious performance, and it fills the church with monsters at open warfare with each other. But James reminds us of the beauty of grace. By speaking about God's law here at the end, he points us to grace. And it sounds so counterintuitive to say that, doesn't it? Law points us to grace, but here's why. The law reminds us the only one qualified to judge is God himself. And instead of scaring us, that points us to grace because in the gospel, God is both the judge and the one judged. God came down. He came down and entered our world of guilt and selfishness. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he took that on himself and was counted as sinners for us to give us grace. He completely fulfilled God's law in thought, word, and deed. He was perfect and did not deserve to die, but he absorbed our sin and he absorbed the punishment that God's law required of us, upholding God's justice by being both the judge and the one judged. So Jesus is the only human qualified to judge is what James says. He has every right to say, I did it, you're not as good as me. Shape up or ship out, I did it, you can do it too. Whatever he wants to say, he can say it, but he doesn't, instead he offers grace. In our guilt, Jesus doesn't say, shape up, do better, he says, take my goodness and I'll take your sin. Take my religious performance of God's law and I'll take your failure we'll do this swap. That's the gospel. He's humiliated and he's judged before the Lord so we can be free from guilt and completely accepted as daughters and sons. That's the gospel. And if that has really changed you, you won't judge your brothers and sisters. You'll be too jazzed by the fact that Jesus could have judged you but didn't. And so as his legitimate follower, you won't judge either. Do you know Jesus like that? And marinate your heart in this grace, dear Christian. Let it humiliate and then exalt you. And if you don't know Jesus like this, you can. You can be the non-judgmental person you really want to be. You can be set free from the selfishness and fear that makes you so quick to get angry. Jesus can heal you of that if you let him. Just place your faith and trust in him as the resurrected Lord. Don't wait, do it now. And for those of you who are Christians, let this recognition of our own internal lusts, our own internal idolatry, and what it does to our community humiliate us. Let it drive us to repentance before our gracious Father who doesn't judge us even though we deserve it but instead he judged Jesus so we could be free. And then secure in God's love, we can then be peaceful and loving to each other as we really want to, but so often don't know how to. Do you want that? Do you want that kind of community? Then embrace Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, I pray even now in this moment that those of us who know you, that you would silence that voice 
that even now is saying do more, be more, try harder, exert, earn, perform. And instead, Lord, you would speak peace to our hearts that we might hear rest in Jesus. That we might look to his performance, not our own. We pray, Lord, for those of us who know you, that you would once again help us to repent and believe your gospel. And Lord, we pray for those who aren't here or who don't know you who are here, Father. We pray that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, shown to be crucified for sin, raised for newness of life, that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to yourself. Even now, Lord, would you build your kingdom. And we ask all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.